Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. If the name sounds familiar, it's because Donnie Mabe has been crushing athletics since his own career as a defensive tackle at UGA. Currently, Donnie is assistant athletic director at UT, specializing his efforts in women's volleyball and men's tennis. Mabe is an incredibly well-read and informed coach who's had inspiring experiences with notorious names in strength and conditioning. This includes our good buddy, Fred Hatfield. Hear Donnie's take on current weight room culture, recruiting evolutions, and the trajectory of college sports. This is episode 272. dedicated power athlete radio listener it's probably friday if you're not i don't even know what day it is for you but for us today is wednesday and ladies and gentlemen we are on the precipice of announcing our next speaker for the power athlete symposium Mm. 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 ladies and gentlemen events.powerathletehq.com learn about the power athlete symposium a three-day speaker extravaganza the premier strength and conditioning conference in austin in december on the 7th 8th and 9th involved with power athlete in the world in texas in texas all proceeds people are going to our 501c3 charity wade's army which also is in the midst of its t-shirt fund raising drive People, if you don't know what Wade's Army is, it's our 501c3 charity. We are dedicated to raising awareness and bringing the fight to the deadly pediatric cancer called neuroblastoma. Tex, tell them about neuroblastoma. So I guess most deadly pediatric cancer, and we are on a mission to take the fight directly to it. And what that means is we are providing families direct financial support. So if they need us, they raise up the, the, the flag, and then we swoop in and provide them whatever they need because I guess the last thing that you want to worry about is missing work or any bills or anything like that. So we just get, take care of the things that they're worried about that they shouldn't be financially. And we're also teaming up with Cincinnati Children's this year. We're going to build a kitchen. So they, I guess we tried to fund a study, but the FDA shut us down for keto. Yeah, no, we were, we've been, uh, not only are we trying to, uh, you know, drive research in some areas that really are non-traditional. Everybody's looking at drugs as, uh, you know, how to treat all these things. And the problem is, is a lot of the reason that I think the kids uh, don't make it and end up, you know, passing away is that their bodies are so riddled from um, a lot of the chemotherapy and a lot of the drugs that they're, that they're putting out. So we've been looking for alternate methods like uh, ketogenic diets or diet modifications or just really anything. And uh, the FDA shut us down on using dietary, uh, doing, doing a study, uh, manipulating and changing, you know, food, macros and anything like that. So um, that was kind of a bummer that they were, um, you know, not interested in looking at some other means that don't involve pumping somebody full of drugs. And so we've teamed up with the Cincinnati Children's Hospital to go in and build kitchens so that we can teach the parents how to cook and get the kids involved so that they can start providing good food. Because anybody knows hospital food, I mean, it's it's a meme, it's a bad joke, and it's like airplane food. It's never good. Uh, and so we just have to learn to empower the parent and figure out, like, hey, we're going to teach you how to cook, we're going to provide you opportunity, and that starts with having a kitchen. So head to weightsarmy.org to learn more about our specific initiatives, or if you want to get involved as a fundraiser, it's classy.org slash wade. 
Do it, people. Enough about us. Enough about everything that's going to change the world. I mean, if you want to be a donter, you don't have to do anything. But remember, do be a doer. Let's get on to another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. ing. And remember, if you want those ing, ing, ing shirts, <laughs> send an email right, to John. Harry at powerathletehq.com with the subject ing, ing, ing. I want it. Yeah, yeah. And then the body can literally be nothing. Or it could be a selfie picture of you in a provocative pose. Yeah, just Maybe. remember, ing, 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 I want it. <laughs> so, people, we have a special guest here in person. Uh, we just trained this morning. We blasted legs, uh, literally. 17 sets, 279 reps, something like that is what the old train heroic app said. But we got Donnie Mabe with us. Donnie, what's going on? He's assistant uh, director, athletic director at UT, right? Yes, sir. And right, the head of it. Olympic sports. A.K.A. Conquistador. Conquistador. A.K.A. <laughs> uh, Emperor of Iron. <laughs> yeah, that's that, right. That, that would the be Ayatollah a, of yeah. Olympic lifting. That would be an interesting uh, business card for sure. There we go. So, Donnie, what's going on, man? Uh, give, give some folks. I know Tex and you have some history. We'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, give them a brief on, you know, what's your day-to-day now? And then where did it all start for you? So, day-to-day, I'm... Definitely working on the Olympic side of sports at Texas. This is my 20th year at UT, uh, 24 years coaching totally uh, in strength and conditioning collegiately. And I started out at Colorado, but my day-to-day right now is just managing and overseeing uh, six other staff, and then we have three other satellite weight rooms. Actually, we just had a brand-new one built for tennis and softball, which is pretty cool. It's about a 3,200, 3,300-square-foot weight room that just opened up about about four or five months ago. So that's my day-to-day. I directly work with uh, volleyball and men's tennis, so I have two teams, then I oversee the staff and facilities. Nice, man. And then where did it all start, right? I mean, are you a former athlete? Did you just kind of fall into this from banking? I don't know. I mean, I think for me it really started as a young teenager being very skinny and undersized, trying to play football, American football, mm-hmm. in Gallatin, Tennessee, and just got into lifting um, because I was just getting pushed around and wanting to be more physical on the field and, and trying to find an edge. And uh, the bus would drop me off early in the morning at school. You know, I, wouldn't, I wasn't old enough to drive yet and just got into lifting. I'd go in the weight room and sneak in there uh, uh, under coach's orders. He wouldn't know I was in there and just kind of lift in the dark. And that's kind of how I caught the bug, so to speak, and started doing that. And then I kind of got a guy to help me uh, was in the kind of powerlifting bodybuilding world there in Tennessee and just started putting on mass, strength, and size. And next thing you know, uh, I ended up starting there, got a full ride to Georgia, play football at the University of Georgia. And just that same passion followed me there. You go into the SEC, this is back in the you know late 80s, early 90s, when they were just on the precipice of having your 300-pound lineman. That was really coming onto the scene. And again, I was 242 at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of catching up to do. And so that really got me into the world of strength as a young athlete that, man, I had to start exploring and testing different training methodologies and systems and whatnot. And ended up getting up to about 282 and was very strong. And then, you know, I had to kind of change that because my performance was dropping because I was getting overpowered. Mm-hmm. And so that got me connected with Doc Crease at Middle Tennessee State right there near my hometown and started training with him with a lot of the Bulgarian-type methods. And then that relationship led to my coaching career. There you go. And then, Tex, what's the backstory? How do we uh, how do we know old Donnie? Old Donnie, let's see. 
2013. So it was spring of 2013, and I was trying to make it in this world as a strength and conditioning coach. And I got turned down from a job because they said, uh, you're great, we love you, but you don't know anybody. And I'm thinking like... What so which mean? one of those was true and which was a lie? I don't well, know. So they were letting me down. Uh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so you don't know anybody and you're like, yeah, yeah no, I know you guys. Well, the, John, John Wellborn didn't hold any weight. Uh, what? Are John Wellborn? <laughs> Luke Summers? Nobody knows. It. What? You weren't the Luke Summers yet. 2001, uh, Illinois High School Football <laughs> State Championship. No weight, no skin in the game. But then I had some buddies that played football at University of Texas, so I name-dropped them to at least throw my hat into an in open internship position with Texas football. So I, I guess either the names caught Donnie's eye or this 27-year-old kid is like, you don't want to be an intern. i got to tell this guy, go do something else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, a phone conversation, I remember, uh, I remember the conversation clearly where I was, just Georgetown campus, and then uh, I don't know if you convinced me to do it or I was already fixed on making it happen. But um, then went down to Texas and Donnie, you were not involved with football, but you still were hanging mm-hmm. around the weight room a lot or made yourself available for, for us to hang out, talk. And I just learned because we weren't getting a lot of direction outside of, you know, the training sessions. Exactly. I remember yeah. you called me quite often. Oh yeah. I knew like, uh, I needed like hysterical. Ledge. Yeah. He's like, this is awful. It's and, different uh, learning experience, but well, I mean, it's uh, you know, big football. I mean, it's a situation where you have a lot of good players that come in, a lot of good athletes, and you have a hierarchy, and the coaches are you know few and far between, and they're focused on working with certain players and well, regulation, know, some, and you're just an intern. But and, there's also a lot of uh, big egos, and you don't want to hurt egos, especially at this level. I mean, you're looking at UT as one of the top schools. I mean, you know, you bring in a lot of guys who you know come in from high school and have all the talent in the world, and it's. Uh, it's definitely an interesting, interesting deal. Um, I, know, I know Donnie works with the Olympic sports, which is a little bit different. But, you know, and, you know, having played football, there's, you know, you would think that there wouldn't be that many fragile people, but there always are. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a great story Chris talks about. I mean, I was definitely transitioning out of football in at 2011, but was still helping with the internship program. So that's kind of how we crossed paths. So, um, but, yeah, definitely, you know, like Chris is saying, and John, like you're saying, it's a – it's a tough industry to get into. It's not a. It's not an easy deal, and and uh, you. It definitely. I think initially, it comes down to who you know. You know, to get your first break, and then it comes after that. It, it, you definitely got to know your stuff. Mm-hmm. So I always like to say, who you know gets you the job, but what you know helps you keep the job, and so you got to keep learning and growing. So that's something that Chris has always done, and, and uh, definitely impressed me. So yeah, but you know we've been fortunate enough to come tour that weight room where you know i have chris you worked there uh but man i'll tell you those facilities are fucking awesome you know yeah. so for like a, i can imagine is he wasn't the traditional intern candidate is he or is he you know 27 year old guy a few years out of college kind of like a i would say a late adopter into the internship pool or is that just is that pretty standard no i mean you de- you definitely get around that age and you're okay. kind of going okay what's going on you know mm-hmm. kind of what's what's your career path in um, but you're starting to see that trend more because it's so oversaturated right mm-hmm. now that it's competitive. And I mean, the thing that really what I remember about Chris is that he was uh, you, you want a guy that's going to come in that as an intern that can kind of you want him to act like a full time strength coach, even though he can't be that guy. 
Chris was a guy that carried himself like that, not only his knowledge, but just how he professionally carried himself. And so that's what stood out. Because you do roll the dice with interns. I bet. If you get some young ones in there that don't know what they're doing and they don't know how to connect and relate with different types of athletes and backgrounds, it can be a, a, a sketchy situation. And, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. But Chris was a guy that came in. and Because I remember uh, the, uh, we had, I think we had a huge class that summer. Yeah. And uh, I remember asking interns, who's, who's, the, who's the guy you guys look up to? And it was Chris. And Chris was oh, almost like, that. I mean, but Chris just set himself apart, and it makes no... Got Vans banned from the Texas football <laughs> weight room? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it who's mad at the Vans? Me. Benny Wiley was mad at the Vans? He's mad at the Vans. <laughs> can't be mad at the Vans. You got, yeah, we're, I mean, UT has a lot of tradition there, and so Burn Orange is a big, big thing down on the 40 acres, and, and uh, it's, that's, that's sacred and hallowed ground for sure, Big John. Yeah. So you're telling, like, if you're rolling up with the wrong, with the wrong color palette, you're going to be... You're gonna be set straight. Yeah, I mean, you you're definitely you, you might get a little. Some depends on the coach. Okay. Some coaches may not notice it, but then there's some. I remember Coach Brown was so big on you know our big rival is OU and A&M at the time during this kind of hey heyday era, and he was so passionate about being against that color that we couldn't even have markers <laughs> that color in the building. I mean, I'm serious. You couldn't have red or anything that kind of resembled. Our rivals, that's got to go. And, I mean, everybody knew that. And, uh, but you, you bled burn orange, and you were passionate against yeah. beating those teams because that's how you made your living. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's like full immersion. You know, it's, it's full commitment to the goal is that even your fucking, even what your writing implements cannot, like, cannot resemble the, the enemy flag, right? Dude, uh, football's a serious deal out no, here. I'm with, I, I mean, I, I, I played <laughs> at Berkeley. I, yeah, I played at Berkeley where it was not nearly. Uh, I mean, it right. was, you know, we played in the, I mean, it's Pac-12 now. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just the level of, like, that people take this stuff to, like, the amount of, like, I remember in the NFL guys having, like, their team tattoos. I mean, if you went to Georgia, you had a Bulldog tattoo, and UT guys had, you know, uh, just awful versions of every Texas tattoo you could ever imagine. And uh, I just remember seeing that. And I, I don't think I've ever – I remember one dude had a Cal tattoo, Baron. He didn't play very long. <laughs> so, no, it was just it's, – uh, it's a different deal out here. People are into it. Fair enough, man. And so uh, uh, we talk a lot about, I guess, transferring training. So training actually being effective. Mm -hmm. And a conversation we had in the weight room earlier this morning reminded me of that in which you were strong. You were big. But then you had a, a moment of clarity in which you couldn't move a sled or you were overpowered that I guess helped this trajectory of effectiveness within your training, which is now carried over into your coaching. So I guess let's get into that side of the story and that light bulb moment that went off where strength wasn't enough. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to one question that my coach asked me on, on the practice field in 90 plus degree heat. And we, we, every day we started out with fundamentals. I played defensive line and could not hit this little wooden sled they had made in the machine shop on campus. And I couldn't hit it and get it in the air and run my feet. I could, but it took forever. And I was, again, I was like 275, benching, you know, right at about 500. And this other guy who was younger than me, he benched like 275. I mean, I'm serious. The guy had like pipe cleaner arms, tiny little arms. He could punch this sled and get it in the air so fast. And the question my coach was, Mabe, what is wrong with you? Why can you not get this sled 
And he would always embarrass me. Are you talking like a sled, like for like a defensive lineman trying to get extension, like trying to get the offensive lineman off him, like to take? I I know exactly what you're talking about. They They, put it against a wall, and you'd have to come out of a low stance and punch it, and then get it straight up and and just run your feet in place. Yeah, well, I couldn't get it. They uh, like Ray Crowther ended up making those like two man and single man sleds, Mm -hmm. and I remember the D lineman had that one that was a sled that kind of went straight up, Mm -hmm. and the D lineman used to constantly work on that to work on extension to get the offensive lineman off them. Yeah, they got all the fancy pads now. This was literally like I think like Bubba made this down in the (laughs) in the country hills of Georgia. (laughs) And you know what's crazy is it's probably better than the shit they made now because uh, it was so awkward. Like I sometimes think with some of the equipment now, they make it too anatomically friendly. That I think uh, um, it's almost like the fact that that somebody made it there and it was probably a little fucked up probably made it that much harder to move. Yeah, because you you go back to just training, like you're saying, Chris, I was very dense and strong, but had lost some mobility. So I couldn't get leverage on that low sled. And then my training, I was very powerful, but just didn't have the speed. And so I were missing those two traits and qualities as a defensive lineman that you need, which led me to that question, why can I not do this? And I just started just searching, and, and I ended up getting connected with uh, Doc Crease. Uh, at, at the time, he was at Middle Tennessee State University about an hour from my hometown and spent a full summer training with him. Mm-hmm. And we were doing a speed strength, type, speed strength type of training, Bulgarian-type methods, snatch, clean, clean, pull, jerks, still squatting and benching, but that was less of an emphasis. Ended up dropping down to about 260, ran a 4840, and the sled was no longer a problem. And that's when the light bulb went off in me. Like, there is a point of no return as an athlete that you're too strong. It's, it's you're way mm-hmm. overpowered, and you've got to you've got to change that depending on the athlete and the sport you're training, the needs of that of that sport. D- Dave Tate made a great point one time. He talked about um, you know for every athlete that it's a lot like uh, like music. They're trying to set the EQ. Mm-hmm. You know, like imagine you're like listening to uh, you know music played, and you have all these kind Pitbull. of you're like listening to a Pitbull album, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, isn't that what everybody listens to? Yeah. yeah. So you're trying to set that EQ so Pitbull sounds great when he drops on, you know, the, the you know. Fireball. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fireball. And, uh, uh, but like Dave Tate made this great point and it was such a uh, rich analogy for like trying to adjust these knobs and too much one way and too much bass and this. And uh, he said, you know, for powerlifting, there's really only three knobs. Uh, you know, like, are you big? Are you strong? And, you know, how, you know, can you move the weight with the only knobs? But when you get out to be like a, you know, a football player, defense alignment, um, you know, the only knob that you guys don't have is the intelligence knob. It's just at zero <laughs> yeah, all yeah, the time. They just drop that <laughs> down. Yeah. yeah. yeah they just, <laughs> we don't have time it, for that. Yeah. yeah too, they're like, uh, to the head. Too yeah. They're, to the head. they're like, get ball. Okay. Um, <laughs> So yeah, this is this is the uh, this is the offense and defense alignment joke of like the offense alignment constantly, uh, you know, reaffirming how unintelligent the D line is. Mm, good ball. But like he uh, he made this great point about like, hey, you know, as you have an EQ, as you start kind of adjusting those things too much and the sound gets messed up. And unfortunately, the only way that, you know, the sounds messed up is if you go out and you play your sport and you perform mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you went out and, you know, your marker for whether or not that sound was correct was that sled. And it was I, I have a feeling that the day that you got faster and all of a sudden you started, you know, raking that thing up against the wall, all of a sudden when you go out and play in the game, it was dramatically easier. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, like I said, I dropped a little weight, but um, I'll never forget the first time I went against about a, one of our 300-pound offensive guards. I was definitely over, undersized by about 40. I ended up bending this guy back, and just because of the my point of contact was so much more powerful. And I was like, from that point on, I was like, I was sold that uh, I don't need to worry about how 
much strength I have with a barbell or a dumbbell. I need to see if that's transferring to the position I'm playing. And that definitely, you know, changed not only my uh, career as an athlete, but it's influenced my whole coaching career now, uh, 20 plus years. So, well, we we have a similar track. I mean, I met Doc Crease in uh, in Colorado on a recruiting trip, mm-hmm. and I remember, um, you know, Doc Crease was a buddy of uh, George Zangus, who was the old guy that trained me. And uh, then also we're That's talking, cool, yeah. you know, uh, who invented the super suits and the wraps, you know, marathon nutrition. He and Doc were old friends. And um, and then obviously, you know, Fred Hatfield and, you know, compensatory acceleration, a lot of stuff we use in our programming is, you know, and we were having, you know, trading uh, uh, Fred Hatfield stories. You know, Fred got away from smoking cigarettes and he was actually hitting off of the vape pipe. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so when we went yeah, down to do we, yeah, our... Um, uh, on the long road. Yeah, on our long road. Like, the you know, we did the last interview before he passed away that he did. Yeah. And uh, he kept hitting that vape pipe, and I, like, looked at him, and he's like, oh, these cigarettes. He's like, it's, uh, you know, it's better than the cigarettes. And I'm like, is it really? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, you're a smart dude. Like, you're vaporizing some chemical into your lungs. And he just kind of laughed. He's like... That isn't what's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <You> know? <laughs> he was that smart. Yeah, he knew. Yeah, he knew. I mean, and he, you know, he, he told me stories about, uh, you know, walking up to the bar and basically uh, taking a big drag, throwing it, and basically, and you know, on the second rep, still blowing smoke out. And I remember thinking, like, God, yeah, damn. I've seen him do that when I was a young, smoking a big cigar, squatting well over eight hundred for oh, reps, geez. fast, fast, very yeah. fast, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, just some of the old training stuff I, I saw Hatfield and like his ability to like, you know, transition between, you know, that accentuation phase between eccentric and concentric was so fast. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking like, uh, like there's something inherent about that. Like, I, I don't know if what he has can be trained, but I think if we can try to search for that and people never really think about it, like, um, he's really the only person I ever, uh, ever heard. Well, I've heard people since then, but he was so big on like, you know, like, uh, you know, everybody's so focused on, on, um, you know, just being able to complete the lift. You know, my deal is how fast can I transition mm-hmm. in that, you know, and you speed up the eccentric movement to be able to speed up that accentuation phase and you can just ring it. And I, I, I was sold. I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, Zang is talking about compensatory acceleration and, you know, you always got to move the bar as fast as you can. And it was something that I just naturally did in my training. And then people always wondered why my punch was so good or I could hit so hard. And I'm like, well, I'm just trying to accelerate everything at all the times. Like, why wouldn't that have carryover on the field? And I, I saw that one piece as being fundamental for my ability to transition between the weight room and what I did on the field. Because like you, man, I saw people all the time that were fucking strong as shit yeah. and couldn't play dead on the field. And I remember thinking, like, I get stronger in the weight room and I get better on the field. You get stronger in the weight room, you get worse in the field. What's the difference? And it just came down to how they attacked the bar, how they lifted in there, you know, like instead of being, you know, uh, you know, to quote Zangus, he told me uh, one time, he's like, you know, don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. Mm-hmm. You know, attack that thing, break it in half, you know, rip it to shreds, move it as fast as you can. And, um, you know, at 14 years old, that was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that was yeah. Fred. I mean, that was yeah. his first message to me was speed is king. You know, and that just, it goes back to, like you were saying, can you? We want to move big weight, but you want to move big weight fast. I mean, that's kind of the the main objective and goal. And I mean, that's what you want. You want that f- that force, and that production on the on the on whatever sport you play. You know, whether it's endurance or or just one one or two reps. I I, I asked him when uh um you know I, I talked to him on the phone a couple times before we ever did a podcast with him, 
And I remember, uh, you know, we constantly get hit with Polkins time under tension stuff because we're big mm-hmm. compensatory acceleration guys. And I kind of threw it at him. I'm like, what do you think about time under tension? And he was like, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he's like, you know, like, uh, 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 you know, that's good for fucking, you know, fitness girl. And he just went off and he's like, he's like any uh, power, strength, speed athlete. He's like, ask an Olympic sprinter about time under tension. They're trying to reduce time under tension. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. And they're not getting a fucking medal for how long they were t- under tension. They were trying to you know, reduce tension. So when you're artificially trying to extend tension, he goes, now if you're trying to build bigger muscles, yeah, then theoretically. But he goes, at the end of the day, uh, you know, um, you know, we weren't doing bodybuilding shows. Nobody was asking me the circumference of my legs when I went to go squat a thousand plus pounds. They just knew I could fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his appeal to that, if I recall, he said it wasn't about time under tension; it was about time under maximal tension as it related to to sports performance. So if you if you're artificially increasing the time under tension, it's it's not doing yeah. it's yeah. not achieving what we what it could be. It's about time under that maximal tension which is ultimately dictated by the load on the bar or the ability of the lifter, right? Like those two work in synergy. And yeah. And then, uh, you know, mastery of technique and, uh, you know, being able to be able to perform a movement to the point of perfection. And, uh, you know, the day that you figure out exactly what that movement pattern is, now you can begin to, to apply speed to it. I mean, just so many of the fundamentals that we developed within our program, uh, you know, that I just, you know, inherently picked up over the years from, from my playing days, um, it just, yeah. I mean, uh, like like when we had him on our podcast, and every every conversation we had, it was just like such a revelation. And and um, you know, it's it's uh, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, you know people today that are later in the strength game. You know, I mean, obviously, I've uh, you know, we're probably a little late. You know, what I like to say, steeped longer in the state in the strength game. Mm-hmm. If enough people will ever really, you know, understand the the contribution he made to this thing. And yeah, I, and, I, think, and I hope they do. One, I think the just the kind of last thing to add to that was Fred. The thing that I really got from Fred was when he would come to Colorado and, and speak and do seminars was you got to stay in that training for a while to reshape and remodel tissue so it can handle the rigors of that training. You know, you talked about that time under tension. If it's not that heavy, you're not going to restructure at a cellular level the mm-hmm. tissue so it can handle those rigors of training. So it takes... It's not something you can just do for a cycle of and be done. It's something you gotta you gotta buy into and espouse to. So, well, I mean, uh, Zangus, I remember told me years ago. Um, he said, uh, and I, I wrote a blog post about this, but I remember he when yeah. I, I was um, uh, he advertised in all the bodybuilding magazines and all the powerlifting magazines. So he just would have stacks of magazines. So after we would lift weights, we would sit around and always flip through all these old powerlifting mags. And I always looked at the bodybuilding stuff, and um, he made a good point to me once. He said, uh, there's a dramatic difference between the physiques of the guys that lift over 85% and the guys that don't. And I remember there was like that big monster Paul Dillett guy there, and I was like, the guy's so big. And he's like, look at the density of his muscle. He doesn't ever lift a weight over 60%. And then he was like showing me like Mike Metzer and all the other guys, mm-hmm. and he's like, look at the, you know, Tom Platts. He's like, look at the density of, of, of their physiques. Look how strong, it, like the muscle is a different muscle. And I was like, "Isn't it steroids?" And he's like, "Steroids came around the '50s, dude. Like, like don't like like that can never be a a, a fucking excuse. Everybody's mm-hmm. had access to it." And he just and I I wrote it in my blog post once that um you know the the thickness, the density, and the quality of the muscle is dramatically different from uh you know from people that lift heavier. And I remember also he made a good point once where um, he said. Uh, if you could get strong lifting lightweights, wouldn't we all just lift lightweights? It's exactly. so much easier. Yeah. 
And I, and I remember being like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. He's like, yeah, it, it does. And then the other joke we had, which was uh, when we were lifting like shit and it looked bad, he'd be like, hey, why don't you have a form day and uh, <laughs> take, take the weight off and uh, you know work on your form? And I'd be like, but George, didn't you tell us that uh, everybody lifts weight, lightweights good and it's the heavyweights we suck at? He's like, exactly. <laughs> and it was just this like, you know, 15, 16 year old kid just getting smart ass by this old man, you know, like, uh, and I just think some of those, those lessons, unfortunately, have been lost, but we're trying what? to bring them back. Yeah. Trying, trying hard. I know one chapter of the book, he talks about constraining factors and then he's a doctor in philosophy and it's real uh, mental side of the game. So I'm curious in your car ride conversations or spending time with him, did, was it only sets and reps talk or did you talk about the, the mindset, the philosophy of lifting weights and performance? No, we never really got into that. I think um, I did have one conversation. I don't know if you guys ever heard this story, but Fred, um, first of all, Fred was crazy. If you spend time just the way he thinks, he doesn't, he never thought the same, which I think definitely set him apart, gave him an edge. But he told this story one time talking about the mental side because Fred was smart and he got into a big squad off with their big gold medalist over in Russia. And they had, they marketed this deal like a show. And, you know, Fred's deal was a squat, obviously Dr. Squat. And so they were having this huge, like, debate on who could squat the most. And, it, and Fred tell, used to tell the story that, at the, I mean, he was well above his record during this season of his life when they were kind of calling him out. But the day he was, I forget the name of the guy he was uh, squatting with that day, that they were having this challenge. And Fred said he was on that day. Like, he was going to break his previous record in front of this Russian crowd. And the guy, he could tell the, the, the gold medalist Olympic lifter couldn't stay with him. But somebody finally pulled Fred aside and said, Fred, if you beat this guy, you're not leaving Russia. You're going to jail. <laughs> the KJ, you're not leaving. Do you understand that? And he goes, are you serious? He goes, yes. And so he ended up ditching and bailing. So, I mean, psychologically, I think you talk about, that's the only one thing I could go, draw back to with Fred on, on the mental side. It was just he knew he had a, I mean, he, he had an ego, but he had enough humility in him to know that, hey, you gotta, sometimes you got to take a back seat. And he did. And they, he said, we got, to, we got the heck out of there quick. So, <laughs> I'll tell you what, when we got to sit with them, it, I, we've had the good fortune through the podcast, through John's network, to sit with some pretty fascinating people. And, and some people just kind of, they, they command a room different than others. Mm -hmm. And he was one of those dudes. And I don't know. I don't know if it was just me being a fanboy or whatever, but I just you walk out of there and you're like, man, just the way, the way the, the way he managed that conversation and you two went back and forth, it was just like a fucking. It was a really, really special moment, and especially that he passed away before we could even fucking edit it. You yeah. know what I mean? Is like was insane. Yeah, great, y'all had him so, in. Yeah, no, I was I was glad to not only chronicle it but have it on tape and get it done. And uh, you know, we did it um, not only you know video but uh, also audio. And so, no, it was great. I mean, when he passed away, we were like, "Oh shit! Thank God we got that done." Um, just to you know have a you know stake in the ground and chronicle and really you know talk mm -hmm. about it. I mean, for the majority of my life, I've always tried to pay homage to the people that got me there. You know, mm -hmm. I've never been the type and like, I did, you know, look what I did. I'm like, dude, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Exactly. Um, yeah. you know, I was fortunate as, you know, and I've told these guys, you know, a bunch of stories about, uh, you know, 
I tried, you know, I wanted to lift weights when I was younger and my dad was like, you know, that's stupid. It's just counting to 10 over and over again. That's never going to get you anywhere. And my mom would drop me off at 24 hour fitness and didn't tell my dad. And I'd go in there and just fuck around on a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I met George and a, and a guy named Tasso Papadakis that, um, I really got to understand about training and lifting weights and it just kind of steeped in it. I was just fascinated and I knew that there was something about this that I wanted to do and I knew it would be important, but I didn't know where. And it wasn't until I started playing football. And um, that was interesting because for some god-awful reason, for every pound I got stronger and every movement, everything I could do, it translated onto the field and I got better. And I used to see guys all the time, they get stronger, we get stronger, and they didn't improve their play. And I remember they'd be like, you know, like, you know, why is it your play improves? And I'm like, I have no fucking idea. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I got a little older and when I went to college and, you know, you remember going to college as a freshman, sophomore, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. You're just trying to, you know, not get killed and try to get through school and all the other stuff. And it wasn't until you get a little bit older and you start looking around and you have guys that you're playing with all of a sudden go play in the NFL. And now, you know, you're kind of getting to that position and start seeing like, why are certain guys falling by the wayside or wayside? Why are guys ascending? And um, it just was a really fascinating, um, you know, thing to see in terms of like human performance and bringing people in. And Cal Dietz has got a pretty good analogy in his triphasic book, talking about you know two hockey players, you know, born at the same time, you know, did all the same training, both go to Minnesota and come in, and mm-hmm. one guy gets better, one guy doesn't. It goes back to just genetics. Some guys mm-hmm. are wired up a little bit different. Some guys are a little bit stronger, have a little more capacity, and um, you know, how it all fits, but, you know, just luck of the draw. Yeah, genetics does play a big big role in it today for sure. So on that note, you know, uh, 18-year-old kid coming into college, right? Like, I think legally an idiot. I re- yeah, no, l- Looking back to me and my friends, and I still, I guess, I am an idiot now, but back then, what the fuck, like, who cared about anything I had to say? No one should have. But you're, you're on the front line of this, right? Mm-hmm. And I think closer or... or with the mindset of athletes who are going to a very prestigious school and have an amazing opportunity. And you've been in the game for, you said 20, 24, yeah. 24 years. So you got a generation that was raised on Rambo and Stallone. Mm-hmm. And then now you got the rock generation coming in. Right. So I'm just curious, like what strategies have you had to change? How has the mindset shifted? How are, how are young athletes have, how are they changing in terms of their response to training? And I guess the technology that's also available to you as well as a coach, like there's a lot of variables that have kind of shifted over time, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on it and as you reflect. No, that's a great question. I think, you know, the big change today, um, I'd have to say, if you look at sports, especially on the Olympic side, you know, I was in football for 17 years, and you deal with a lot of guys that come out, especially out of the state of Texas, that have a powerlifting background. And But now on the Olympic side, and I have four daughters as well, married with four daughters, you're, you're getting a lot. So of, lucky. I'm so, so blessed. Yeah, I'm going four, blessed four girls. Six, I'm going for six daughters. There six daughters, yeah. Uh, it's going to be easy. I got to um, I, I'll just tell you this. I have two girls, yeah. and I will say that um, uh, just in terms of boys, I could have six boys for every one daughter. Yes, it is a different deal. My little boy is, um, other than throwing up last night, he was he's pretty easy. I'm four daughters, yeah, a lot I got of work. Four, dude. yeah, different personalities Ooh, and a lot so, of emotion. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you guys can help me out. Yeah, cor- yeah, cornucopia of emotion. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think you know, just being in, as a parent, being involved with my daughters and watching them in club sports today, 
and then I'm getting, we're getting all these different athletes from you know, volleyball and soccer and basketball and um, definitely swimming. You get a lot of our athletes. What you're getting today uh, coming into the collegiate scene is you're getting athletes that have trained under a professional model. Mm-hmm. And they have not had a lot of the just basic fundamental cross-training uh, methodologies in sports coming up. They've specialized in one sport so early when you get them, their bodies are pretty broke down. Why, especially with volleyball, right? I mean, yeah. that's like an early specialization track. I mean, w- would you say that your coaches go in and recruit, um, you know, like, uh, is it more, I don't know, like, um, I sometimes think that uh, the recruiting process is a little fucked because they're looking at not uh, what the potential of the athlete could be. They're looking at probably what they've done because it's a far show. Well, they were really good in high school. They'll be good here instead mm-hmm. of like, uh, this girl was, um, you know, was pretty good, but she also plays three or four other sports. So she doesn't have, she hasn't been dedicating the time. And her first spe- year was sophomore year, yeah. right? And so I, I sometimes think that, like, if, if the coaches tended to recruit more on uh, on the potential of it, then I think what that... What they can be. Yeah. yeah, then doesn't that, like, as a parent, like, I, I know for my girls, uh, I'm totally against early specialization. I want them to play everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I keep telling them, like, the more things you can do, the better you are in it's terms so of developing true. athleticism. Yeah. It's true. And, uh, you know, even if at six years old you're pretty good at soccer, uh, I would never let you just play soccer. I mean, you'll, you know, not until you were 16 or 17. And then, uh, cause you, it, I think it makes you so one dimensional. I just think that in the, uh, in the recruiting, you know, high stakes world of scholarships and like getting to go to a school, um, how do those coaches look at recruiting in that idea? Do well, they I look think, like that? Yeah, I think, um, I, I don't know. I think it depends on the head coach's philosophy. I think in your, your big schools where the pressure is immense to win, you're looking for you're constantly looking for kids that can come in and make a pretty significant impact pretty quick. I think that if you get a coach that's a little bit more they're kind of at the upper echelon of their game in whatever sport that is, then they got a little bit more leeway to kind of build up those those classes of kids at what the the potentials there and you could be a little more patient with it. So again, I just think it depends on the nature and the climate of that sport in that university, depending on what kind of pressure that coach is feeling. I know uh, you look at, uh, you know, I don't, I don't work with basketball, but on the men's side, I mean, those kids can come in and be here one year and then they're on to the pros. And so that, that's a different model than, say, like a football model that, you know, these kids are coming in. you got two to three years to develop them. I mean, some of these kids in football are going pro their junior year. And – you know, they're getting to where they're not even going to bowl games anymore because there's a risk of getting hurt, and there's really no payoff for that. So the the game is changing. The model's changing. I know uh, you look at uh, working with volleyball, just looking at them. I mean, you're looking for those kids to come in, not only to make an impact now, uh, but you want to try to develop them to get them ready for the Olympics down the road. So it's a different model depending on the coach and the system they're coming out of and the pressure that you're feeling from the – so there's a lot of different uh, things to consider in that recruiting model. Yeah, I mean, I, I know playing in the NFL, there was very, I remember every year they would draft some kid or this kid's going to come in and make a difference. And we were always like, dude, it's not the case, man. Yeah. In the NFL, it's so difficult for a kid to come in in his first year. I mean, I can think of like some of the best ones, like uh, Tony Gonzalez and some of these guys that came in as rookies. And, you know, Tony was only there three years and came in and, you know, was able to come in and play. But it took him three or four years to really get into his groove where he was a dominant player. It's just, it's such a physical, mental kind of difference. Whereas I think some of the other sports, like basketball, 
uh, you know, you can take an 18, 19 year old kid who's, you know, pretty big and, you know, be able to kind of throw him in there. I mean, look at LeBron. I mean, he went in at 18 years old and, you know, but I mean, think about it now. I mean, he's twice the player in his 30s that he was in his teens. And uh, that maturation process just, it takes time. And I think for female athletes, even more so. Um, you know, and then you think about all the early specialization and injuries and all the things that they're not working on because they're just doing nothing, concentrating on their sports. Um, I think that there's like a, you know, strength conditioning block that ever, that is almost more important for the female athlete just to strengthen them, to prevent them from injuries. And if you're constantly putting them into this cycle of club here and here, and they're playing sport all year round and you're not really giving them a solid training opportunity, I think it's really just a, you know, it's, it's such a huge negative. Yeah. That was part of our conversation with Mike Robertson last week. So, Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. Indianapolis. Um, but I guess as the volleyball player gets the opportunity to enter a strength and conditioning program and focus on one season for the first time in their life, Mm -hmm. how, how big is that jump is does the volume bring them down or does that performance spike their freshman year no i don't think the i think it's an adjustment in that um this is a big piece of your first question is i think the adjustment today that i see you know from a training side is is definitely different because of the club model and their year-round playing but I think the adjustment too as well with kids today is the parents. And you've got you talk about recruiting, you really gotta do your homework on the kids' parents and then kind of how they were raised. Cause you you start you spend all this time, effort, effort, energy to build up this great program. And if the smaller the team, the wrong kid can come in there that maybe they're really talented. But it's all about me, mm, yeah. and they're just their, their parents can't. They're just a helicopter parent. Yeah. They can come in and really wreak havoc in the program. It's something that you've built years, uh, getting that program to a high level. So I think not only do you got to train them correctly, but you got to find the right uh, mindset and the culture fit of the core values of that kid coming in. So I think that's a big piece of that as well. And then going back to your question, Chris, about uh, just about the volume the volume of training actually drops off on the volleyball side. They have more time uh, for us to develop them in the weight rooms, which is a big piece. And you can get, you can get more specific and kind of attack some of their um, – they have a lot of, like, asymmetries and imbalances just because they've been playing this one sport for so long. There's a lot of overuse injuries that you gotta, you got to program around. You can't train them always in a traditional manner with, you know, a bilateral-type uh, exercises. A lot of time you got to be on one leg or one arm – to kind of to, to attack those weaknesses, especially with your female athlete, you got to do that to set them up to keep them healthier. So, Donnie, I'm curious on that culture fit piece. Uh, would you be able to talk about, about how you screen for that, or how recruiters screen for that? Maybe not you guys, but may uh, just in general, what it, what's the process to screen that athlete to make sure they fit into the program? Well, I think today, you know, here's the kind of the challenge and the temptation. Everything is so online today. Everything's virtual. You're connected. You can get video on, on whoever you want, highlight reels. You yeah. can really evaluate athletes at a higher level than you ever have. You can get stats at the drop of a hat. What you can't get is the face-to-face time with the kid. So you, so you look at the coaches that really do a great job. They're going to leave campus consistently, get on a plane, go out, meet their club coach, talk to the parents, not just do it once one time, but like consistently have those points of contact. And then you can kind of see a history of kind of what kind of kid you're bringing in or you're recruiting. Uh, I love the John Wooden story. I don't know if you ever heard 
Uh, Chris, I know you read some John Wooden, but the story of when he went in, when he was coaching, he was going to offer this a kid a scholarship. He had it in his back pocket. He goes in to meet with this, this kid, and the young man was very disrespectful to his mom or his dad. I can't remember which parent. And the assistant coach was with him on the visit. And he never, they get out in the car and he goes, hey, you didn't give that kid a scholarship. You didn't offer him. He goes, I'm not offering that kid to come play for me. Uh, he was way too disrespectful to his mom and to his dad. He will not play for me. And he kept the scholarship because of that one trade. He knew that kid would bring in that kind of, that kind of infectious, bad attitude into a team. And so I think you can't just rely on technology. you got to get out and touch people and look them mm -hmm. in the eye, have conversations, and see them in just normal, everyday settings. If you try to forego that, you're really setting yourself up for some problems. Is there, are there any stories where a, a parent has misspoken or, you know, the, the kid seems fine, but you, the parent becomes the risk of the program? I don't know so much that. I, I think with um, what has really helped with that kind of question mm -hmm. is, again, in the recruiting process, you set the expectation early on of how you're going to manage this parent's, their child that if there is an issue, then that needs to be handled in a certain way, very professional. Um, you know, if it's something, and typically our kind of standard, uh, the way I see that works best, the kid needs to have the meetings with, with, the, with the coach. The parents don't need, need to be involved. And then, you know, if they can't work something out then, if it kind of yeah, keeps going, then flag. maybe at some point, maybe it's good to, I think it's good what I've seen to meet with the parents and see what kind of, let's see if the story your kid is giving you is the same story that we're giving your kid. Let's see if these are matching up. And typically, if you get to that point, it usually clears things up. And it really just comes down to holding the kid accountable. Right. You know, they're fearful of their parents or that they're letting them down. They're not playing as much as they want. But it comes down to holding the kid accountable for a certain level of work ethic. It helps them grow up mature. And, uh, it, and the parents typically are on board with that uh, when those settings. So it's good. It's kind of cool to see. It's not always fun, but it's cool to see. Yeah, I was just I was curious because – there was text, maybe it was the radio or you. I mean, both both are things I drown out from time <laughs> to time. But uh, there was a study that came on uh, that was like a 10-year study or survey to companies ranging from like Fortune 500 to startups about, you know, employee interview process. And it was like they had a percentage of how many employee or prospective employees brought their parents with them to the office and they grouped it by age, right? From 18 to 20, That's tw interesting. uh, 20 to 25, 25 to 30. Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? Yeah. It was from a podcast, but I can't remember exactly. But the long, long and short of it is like they, they did five year age brackets. They did company sizes and then they did like percentage of where the, like how involved the parent was. And there was fucking 35 to 40 year old dudes whose parents showed up with them at the interview or negotiated negotiated never the, heard this. the position for That's them with crazy. HR um, on behalf of the fucking kid. I'm fucking humiliated for and that. And my pop, dude, my, my old man's a dentist. He's on the verge of retiring, and he's, he's, he's been doing this shit for 50 years, right? A little, little, under, little under 50 years. But he's got patients that he's, you know, has treated since they were six, seven years old that are still coming in with their parents. Their parents are still fucking paying for them, and they're just like... They've not, they've not grown up since. So, uh, I told you guys a story. Six years old. Um, we have a bunch of deer, uh, like we got about like five big bucks that are showing up to eat every night in my, uh, my pasture and the they're other. They're just, they're big Texas bucks. So if anyone's out in Minnesota or Illinois, they're not like the, 
yeah, what they're we're not used monsters, to up there. But, but they're, they're they're big for Texas. Yeah. They so, looking they look fucking great. So the other day we're in the pool and uh, the guys were over and uh, I yelled at Luke. I'm like, come out! And they were out there in the pasture. And so uh, we're like, oh, look at those things. Like, this is going to be a good hunting season. It's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be awesome. And, and so my little girls asked her, like, are you guys going to kill them? Or are you going to hunt those? I'm like, yeah, we're going to get them all. And they were like, well, you know, are you going to shoot the mommies and the daddies? And we're like, well, yeah, well, we got to make room for next year's mommies and daddies. And so we've been going in this big talk about, like, nature and why you have to, you know, mm-hmm. make room for next year's crop and the whole deal. So I turned on this Animal Planet on, um, on Netflix and it's like shows like all of if you guys haven't seen it, dude, it's probably the best cinematography of anything I've ever seen. No, it's great. Yeah. I mean, but it's just basically showing nature and like, you know, how it really works that, you know, these animals kill each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've been kind of going through this whole thing. But the one that was very upsetting to them is um, the babies, like the baby chicks in the in the nest that like this baby chick, like the mom basically like reached back and kicked the chick out of the nest. <laughs> and the one chick took off flying, the other chick fell. And there was all these like little like uh, mm-hmm. sticky kind of pod things on the bottom that stuck to the chick. And he tried to fly, but he had weighted down and he couldn't fly and he ended up dying. Yeah. And they were like hysterical that like the mommy had kicked him out. And I was like, well, why? And they were like, well, she didn't take care of her babies and this. I'm like, no, she raised them up and it's Time the mother's to job to, 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 to force her children to That's go right. out and to take flight and to become, to go out on their own. And if they don't, they die. And she, and they were like, why? I'm like, well, she has to make room for next year's chicks. So then you're telling me that if that, if that chick stays in the nest, what about the next year's babies? They don't get their mm-hmm. chance to have, she, they don't get their chance to survive. And uh, they were like this, and I'm like, just like you guys, like chicks. At some point, I will firmly put my foot on your back, and I will kick you out the door. <laughs> and uh, well, and and I told them, I'm like, you have to. And I said, as a parent, if you don't kick your kid out of the nest and force them on their own, they will stay in the nest forever, and they won't make room for the next chicks. And so, like, we've I been thought, having I thought this re-nesting was like a, a no. very popular approach to parenting. No, eighty percent of Nate parent- Austin <laughs> tried to convince us that re-nesting was good. Uh, if I tried to re-nest with my mom, she if, if I'm the even at my mom's house for a day or two, she fucking get on me. But it's just this interesting thing. And so we've been watching this uh, Nature's Planet show and it like it showed these like baby iguanas being born and they have to like get to the water and these snakes chase them and like some survive and some don't. And they were like, well, why this? I'm like, because only the strongest ones, only the fastest uh, lizard iguanas survive, beat mm-hmm. the snakes. So they're the ones that get to survive and breed so that if they if a slow one makes it and they breed, then all of them are the slow ones. So I'm like, it comes down to genetics and this, and we're trying to have this like six year old there, they're almost seven, this conversation on like mm-hmm. evolution and nature and this. And I keep telling them, I'm like, as, as terrible and as savage you think this world is, nature is a thousand times more savage. But it's mm-hmm. also pretty simple as well. Like if you, if you, th- that exact scenario of these iguanas trying to get to their adult life is it's luck or you're fast. Like yeah. And, and otherwise you're dead, you know, and it's like, those well, are the two, but, but, but what's crazy there's no social is, component is, to it. One well, wasn't but, this, but the think about this, right? So the iguanas, when this is the one that blew my mind. So the snakes can't see, they can only sense, uh, movement. So, uh, the, so some of the iguanas will run and just stop mm-hmm. and the snakes will go around them. And then as soon as they go on, they take off running and then they get chased again. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world does that baby iguana who's just born know to instinct. stop and instinct just yeah. to stop and let the snake go by because the snake knows movement? Yeah, and then take off running like I like we. Uh, it's probably the, the best thing I've ever seen. Like yeah, that and then eagles fighting. I don't but, know if you guys have ever seen eagles fight, but that shit was crazy. And 
this reminds me of our episode with Dr. Lori Santos. That she's an evolution psychologist. It was pretty fascinating stuff. But then there is a social component because you had that big, big bully fish, right? But then the little fish, the guy who's genetically smaller than him, outsmarted him by waiting in the cave that he's protecting mm-hmm. for all the women. I can't remember. That was an analogy she gave. No, no that was a story. She she was oh, saying the- that like the big fish will like guard uh, the shells so that the. Uh, uh, so that he has more females, but then the smart little fish oh, yeah, will yeah, actually yeah. get into the shell ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, so yeah. when the female gets in the shell, he like knocks her yeah, up and yeah, then they yeah, come yeah, out yeah, together yeah, and he yeah, swims yeah. away. But like, <laughs> it, it's just, um, I think, I think what we've done is, you know, everybody's kind of evolved and especially as parents, like, um, and you know, this, like you want to help your children. Mm-hmm. And I think like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's uh, just a changing in ideals, but it, it feels like parents today are much more involved than they were 30, 40 years ago. Like I remember, you know, getting on our bikes and riding and being gone like eight hours and coming home and my mom and I were asking us where we are. Now it's like, we're so much more dialed into what our kids are doing and going here and here. And I think for, uh, but hasn't the threat level increased a bit? Maybe, but, uh, I remember talking with my brother and my brother's like, as involved as you want to be, you have to let your kids have space. Like you have to let them go out and fail. And if they skin their knee, they have to look around they need to pick themselves up. And he goes, if you are over there constantly helping them, he's like, it's just, it just doesn't work. And, um, you no, know, it doesn't get them ready for life. I mean, because how many kids them. have you seen show up whose parents had done everything for them? And all of a sudden the first time in life, they're here, they're there at college, they're on their team and you know, their mom isn't sitting or their dad isn't sitting in the stands to fix every fucking problem. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, they're out there and they're just, you know, have no, yeah. haven't created, they, they basically haven't developed the skills uh, because they weren't kicked out of the nest early, and um, then they show up at your deal and your deal, and you're like, your parents did not prepare you for this. Yeah, and that's honestly that's one thing I absolutely love about my job is we're really getting athletes ready for life. At the end of the day, is that we're teaching them how to win in life because we tell them on the recruiting trip, like, dude, you're going to run into some adversity here. It's not going to be an easy ride, and it's going to. And I've, we've had athletes; it's been their toughest season of their life. But when they make it through it, they look back, and they're so much more mature and equipped to handle real life once they get out there. So that's a big part of our job. It's not always the funnest part, but it's definitely very fulfilling to me. What do you think the most underrepresented? I mean, like, let's say I had like two seven-year-old girls that are pretty good athletes. <laughs> yeah. What sport for do you think that would be most uh, like would be a good opportunity for them to maybe potentially play or be skilled in to get a scholarship to go to UT? Oh man, that's tough. I think right now you're going to be around because I, I got a feeling huh? in about ten years I'm going to be getting some recruiting calls. Just for somebody going to see the last name and they'll be like, isn't that, wait, did their dad play in the NFL? Let's hit this dude up. Yeah, no, I think you, you, you definitely keep a watch on the height. So that will dictate a lot. Well, Kelly's out. <laughs> well, my one daughter is like freakishly tall. So Jamie's going to be. That's yeah. it. That could be, I mean, if she's explosive, probably got mom, probably uh, dad's genes. I don't know what your, is your wife pretty athletic? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So yeah. So that's double whammy. She's going to be good. Um, it's going to be tall. You think? Probably basketball, maybe even something in track and field. For sure, volleyball is a huge sport uh, in the state of Texas and globally now. I mean, I think it just – volleyball just surpassed – I forget uh, what sport just is a club sport has surpassed. I forget all these different sports. It's become that popular. And women's volleyball collegially has more opportunities to get full scholarships, I think, than 
in the men's volleyball team like significantly. So it's a it's a growing popularity. And if you want to get your scholarship paid for, it's a great sport to jump into. But that's going to be one. And I think you know, high basketball would be good too. Yeah, basketball. Uh, what about lacrosse? So lacrosse is is that pretty big? Not big here in the in, in the, Texas. No, not yet. Uh, but it's making its way, I guess, west. Yeah, it's growing big. West it's Coast big. Pac-12 schools for females, anyway. Uh, it's more East Coast, right? Yeah, men's not so much. It's got Utah. This was the first year University of Utah had a program, and they're the farthest west, then Air Force, and Denver. Uh, Cal had a it. lacrosse, but it was um, it was a club sport. Yeah. We, yeah have, so. we have club sports here like that, so. But, that, you know, no scholarships. I remember, I, I think it was field hockey that could give scholarships, but not lacrosse. For but men? No, for women. Oh, not not yet. They should have it now. Do men play field hockey? Ol- Olympically. Really? Yeah. Oh wow! It's a it's an Olympic. Do they sport. have to wear skirts? Those are kilts, John. Oh, kilts. Uh, no, I don't know. Okay. Did you play field hockey? Are you looking at me? Yeah. No. I, I mean, real I didn't play field I mean, hockey, but I know I fucking played floor hockey in high school and fucking some. What about what about pocket? Uh, didn't you play a lot of pocket pool too? Pocket pool every third period. <laughs> 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 you know, Tex is a big music guy. I played a lot of skin flute. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. orchestra. <laughs> He's on you today, <laughs> every day. Yeah, I gotta stay on him. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Texas, uh, you know, he he's got a lot of uh, a lot of exuberance. You know, you gotta you know make sure you kick him at least once or twice a day, to keep him down. Exuberance, huh? Yeah, you're allowed, I'm gonna have to look that up and then get back to you, John. <laughs> uh, Donnie, it's at Berkeley I know, Education. I know you're a, you're a big reader. Yeah, uh, I've seen the bookshelves in your office. What's what's currently on the list? Oh, I just finished uh, a book that was very um, just tweaked my thinking organizationally in sport um a couple books but the one i read was team of teams by general stan stanley mccrystal and it was so fascinating to read about how they had to change how they were managing and leading our troops it was so just old school kind of top down and they had to start realizing that everything's become so it's not complicated anymore it's become complex and so the structure of how they would integrate these different plans and the way these teams work together communication wise and strategically had to con- change dramatically because we were getting beat in the war and uh so the book basically accounts his own thought processes of how they did things in the military over the years and how they had to change to catch up because they were going against an uh, uh, an enemy that could morph at the drop of a hat because they didn't have the resources we did. And see, we were so just bureaucratic and diplomatic in our nation of how we did that, of how some of those changes they had to make to get up to speed so we could move faster as a, a military unit. So that transfers over into sport in that you're seeing this wave of, so now you got, you used to be when I played, you had a strength coach, and your sport coach, and that was it. So now you got one athlete. Think about the support team where they've got a nutritionist, they got a sport psychologist, they got a sport scientist, they got an athletic trainer, they got a strength coach, they got an assistant coach, and now academic stuff. So this huge support team around this athlete, you can't be like just alpha and like it's all I know everything. I wear all the hats. So this team of teams concept is definitely changing our industry and profession and how you approach. Uh, your performance with all your athletes. So that book definitely was, man, it just tweaked my thinking on how to even build our staff and make our 
area better at Texas. So it was, it was a great read. Recommend it highly. Hmm. Killer. I'll put that one on the list. So I guess with – I also have a line with question about technology because you have a whole now sports science department, and that's a resource that not a lot of schools have the opportunity to take advantage of. So how do you keep the coach's eye developing the organic kind of coaching side of things but still, I guess, take advantage of the sports scientist side of things? Yeah, it's, so I think – I like to use a couple terms when it comes to technology – and in the world of sport, it's still so new uh, to us. We just recently had over Julian Jones from, uh, from the Australian Institute of Sport was in town recently. And I was, it's funny you talk about interns, John, but we were sh- showing him around. And uh, this intern came up to him, hey, so-and-so, hey, nice to meet you. He didn't know who Julian was. I mean, Australia's been doing sports sciences for, for 30 years, technology. And the kid was started telling him about stuff he had. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Have you, he, he asked he asked Julian, he goes, hey, have you ever heard of the, uh, the Nordic hamstring curl? He goes, uh, yeah, we invented that. <laughs> and I was just like, these kids, they just don't know what, you know, that we, we, in America we think, hey, we invented this. No, we're just now coming onto the yeah, scene. Yeah, in this with, world, right? Yeah, in the sports science and the technology, we're just now kind of coming onto this. And so in many ways, it's the wild, wild west. We really don't know what we're doing yet. Yeah, Australia is far in the sports science, but they are far behind in practical application. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. You know, um, the majority of strength and conditioning and most of the practices and stuff they're looking at have come out of America. And especially, I mean, all, it all started with the NFL and what people are doing. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I think it's it's interesting that you know the Australians uh, are so far on like the research science side, mm-hmm. but yet so far behind in the practical application. I remember um, you know seven eight years ago, I got hit up to write some programming for. Um, Aussie rules football team and their strength coach was like you know uh we're you know having all these overuse injuries I'm like well look at your training the volume was high yeah yeah I mean you guys are doing three sets eight to twelve doing standard bodybuilding splits with these guys that are running you know five to ten k per day high high velocity yeah man so we changed it up into a you know um, higher percentage lower rep more explosive longer duration stuff I'm like let's change a different energy system and I remember when I sent the program the dude called me and we skyped in he's like um I'm nervous I'm gonna get fired if I show somebody this and I was like, just fucking do it. Yeah. And he went in and they were, I, we don't think it's going to work, but we'll try it. And within a year, they cut their injury rate from like 30 down to 3%. And all of a sudden they were doing great. Everybody this, and he gets, you know, you know, it's cheers and champagne and toasting him. And he's doing such a great deal. And then they bring in a new coach who was like, oh, this will never work. And they end up firing the dude. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah, we had, you know, documentation. We were doing well. Everything was going great. So it's just, um, there's. Uh, for as much research and knowledge, I think sometimes they're really fucking ass backwards on some shit. Mm-hmm. And there was no way they invented the fucking, uh, the eccentric hamstring curl. I mean, yeah, dude, the- that was, uh, I mean, I, I first read about that with um, Charlie Francis, who said, if you could do those, you'll never pull a hamstring. Yeah, and I'm talking about the... The, the, the testing unit? Yeah, the Oh, unit. the testing, yeah, oh, okay. It's, it's hooked up to some sensors and gives you the readout on the, the, the deficits on each hamstring. Oh, gotcha. gotcha they were gotcha. the first, yeah, to kind of invent that where it could give you a readout Read on. on it. Yeah. So which is funny that, you know, that we were showing this at Texas and this kid just didn't know. And I, I had some inclination of, of that they had that history there. But uh, uh, going back to uh, that question, though, I think on the technology side, I like to say it's, it's more, I think the approach right now is more evolutionary versus revolutionary. It seemed it kind of going back to what you just said about Australia. I know we were in, we were at Cal Berkeley yeah, when we built our weight room here. We visited out there and took a tour of all their 
facilities uh, and you know, they had put in the Sornex racks and we love that and we have that in our room but um, they had hired a sports scientist over there and I think they were from was this uh, this was the Olympic weight room right yeah. uh, down at uh, Hossfield no this was the new big one the oh fo- up, up at football yeah and yeah. so that I can't I don't you know I don't know who the person was came in and tried to implement all this stuff too fast and just the coaches didn't like it and end up shutting it down. The room they built for it, they ended up turning into putting fridges in their storage, the sports science room. So I think, you know, what, what I've seen that works really well is you've got to find coaches that are really open-minded to looking at how they periodize their practice plans and looking at monitoring, athlete monitoring, fatigue, different models of how they can practice and prepare their athlete better to play. If a coach is not willing to change their model because it's working, um, you're not going to get any traction on that. So, again, I think there will be a day and time where we, we don't know anything different. I read last night, I'm reading this book on the, the millennials and Generation Z kids right now, just studying our kids. And right now, the Generation Z kids, they will not ever have a day that they grew up without social media. You and all of us did, right? Oh, yeah. So think about sports science. There's going to be a day. What, uh, what's a... Um like what's the uh, the year deviation? Like like what's the split on those? For so, like I, I think millennials are what eighty six, eighty eight, two thousand. Yeah, yep. they say eighty to two thousand. Eighty to two thousand of the millennials, and they're calling this new generation the centennials. The centennials. Yeah. So, so from oh one to what, eighteen. What's Z? Just like Generation Y, I don't know what the Z stands for. Oh, I, I know, but I think uh, we were Gen X. I think I was Gen X, born '76, so mm-hmm. Generation X. And then yeah. I remember there was Generation. Oh, I got all the generations oh, here. Lay it on us. Okay, so we have. Uh, I'll reverse engineer this. Stop Gen- this. Who, Generation who, Z. Who's the source? Uh, Wikipedia. Mm. Uh, you can never trust that one. I got Generation Z, Millennials, Generation what's, X. What's Generation Z? It's baby present boomers. up till what? 18, I mean, t- uh, 2001, right? Mid-90s to mid-2000s. Yeah. That's Generation Z. Okay. Baby Boomer, Silent Generation, GI Generation, Lost Generation. Yeah, but what John's asking for is the windows of time. 19, Mid-1990s to 2000s. Okay. Right, but for the respective generations. For, yeah, for the millennials. And then millennials is after Z? Mm-hmm. Uh, early 80s to mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the millennials? X is... Mid sixties to early eighties, yeah. Baby boomers, sixty to sixty four. Short, silent generation, nineteen twenties, up until that last point. GI generation, we're going back, back, back. Well, I think you have the greatest generation, ninety, which yeah. should be the silent, because it was known as the greatest generation was kind of before the was the one. Before the baby boomers. And lost generation is 1883 to 1990, where I guess not a lot of records were held. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the clever name. So what, uh, what's the book saying? So that the, uh, so you have these Gen Z guys that, have never, that will never live in a world without social media or a cell phone. Yeah, the interesting thing about this technology is driving the gap that used to be longer on these changing in these generations as technology is picking up and changing quicker, it's changing the, the way kids interact and are raised. It's having that big of an impact. And so that's why you're seeing the shorter windows. On the, that's what this one author... Mm-hmm. Uh, that it I, makes sense, too. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty intriguing. Do you, do you think... Um, I constantly keep feeling like there's going to be some backlash. 
Like, uh, like we're going to go so far this way that there's going to be this like snapback where all of a sudden now, like the next generation of phones going to come out, it's just going to be able to do text and make calls and that's mm-hmm. it. And all of a sudden, like, like there's going to be a backlash against all these apps and all this technology and stuff. And people are going to go in the other way. And it's going to realize that like, I was just watching this, uh, um, I think I forwarded to you guys on Slack, but it's the idea that, um, uh, the, apps in these like major social media groups are going out and hiring what they call behavioral scientists Mm -hmm. or um uh, yeah was it no not not behavioral but they call them uh attention uh yeah something like attention researchers Mm -hmm. that have for years have been coveted by the casino industry to develop casinos in such a way to like make the exits in a certain way and air temperature and room and smell and like how to arrange everything to like keep people in it and then it's like this constant dopamine and they do all this research they've taken the same thing for uh for social media and um you know the idea of like uh the fear of missing out and the fear that like somebody out there is potentially reaching out to me that i don't know about and it's like this massive thing that they're playing upon and so what they'll do is they found a way to stream information in such a way to drip it so like if like when people see things how it works and this Mm -hmm. and so you're constantly checking back like you change a profile picture and how and it's like let's say uh, uh, 150 people like it well they don't ever show you those 150 at once they actually stream and they drip them so that as you check the you know it goes back and they talked about the psychology of it and they basically said what they're doing is they're creating these uh you know they're very scientifically creating these addictions based upon playing on our fears to to you know for generating money and the comment was like at some point uh people are just going to throw these fucking things in the trash and they're going to be yeah. like, hey, uh, send, send me a fax, leave a phone. I mean, for, for our kids, um, I feel like we're able to kind of like, I'm able to see it. Uh, but I know for my kids, like, if, if, if my phone isn't locked, they'll pick it up and start fucking fucking around with it and playing with the apps and this and this. And I'll take it from them, I lock the phone, and I put it away. I'm like, mm-hmm. don't touch it. Leave those things alone. And they, what they don't understand is these are, and I try to explain it to them, I'm like, these are, you know, there's a work and a social component to these things. Like, um, cause my daughter asked me, she's like, well, what, what, what is this Facebook thing? And I'm like, I have no idea if, if, if it wasn't connected to our business, I would have deleted this thing long ago. Mm. It just, I, I think it's a massive time suck and it's a waste. And honestly, um, and I constantly do these checks where like, I'll like post something and I kind of see like how many reactions I'm like, I got 5,000 friends and only seven people really interact with me. I'm like, why do I need these other 4,993 people? You don't. Well, in truth, the algorithm allows the seven people to interact with you. I know. Right? So, so then they're, what mm. they're doing is they're setting up an algorithm so that those people, only a few people are seeing my information. So then why does it even make sense to even put it out there? I, I don't know. I don't get you, it. You can just tell us. We sit right next to you in the office. Yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you this. If I, if, if I put something on social media and you guys liked it, I'd look over and be like, just give you get a little back finger. to work. Yeah, you know, <laughs> well, like uh, so, liking it is not liking it. Well, it, it was funny. It was that? funny. Uh, Fred, Freddie Camacho posted that uh, that video from like eight years ago of a workout. Dude, he looked jacked and he was a way better mover. I was like, whatever you were doing back. Oh yeah, you were. I was helping your program. Uh, and then Luke like made a comment on it, and I wanted to be like, <laughs> like the fact that we're having conversations on social media and you're sitting ten, you know, uh, ten inches from me. That's modern day. No, yeah. I th- that was. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was last night. Wasn't it was it? last night. Yeah, wasn't some it? ten inches from one another. Yeah, well, we were sleeping in, in the same bed. Head to head. To head yeah, it was weird. Uh, but like, like, <laughs> it, 
I almost and, and and I hate to say this because you sound fucking like we sound like ah like the old fucking grumpy people, but I, I I'm really glad that I grew up in a time before all this mm-hmm. and I got to see the difference, so I have a perspective of like before and after. And uh, I'm I mean part of our move to Texas and a lot of this was that like I wanted my kids to grow up uh, in a little bit more of a rural kind of uh, traditional like not serious like Newport Beach kind of bullshit yeah moving too fast and, and kind of superficial yeah and uh and, and it's just like I, I like to see like uh 10 year old kids that have cell phones and my daughters are like when do I get a cell phone I'm like when you go to college and you earn a scholarship and they're like oh okay I'm like good that's that's enough said like like why do you need them who are you trying to get a hold of mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I, I recently had a kind of aha moment with these, with our just our athletes. Our athletes today talk about, well, I talk to so-and-so, and, and that's how they say it. Well, to me, that means I was face-to-face, and we talked. I go, wait a minute, you did you talk to him? No, I just, it was just a text. I go, okay. So after, you have to realize that the word talk today is different than it was when we grew up. When they say they talked, it's either they they were texting or they did a Snapchat or something, and there was no social interaction whatsoever. But they've had these long conversations, so you kind of gotta. It's just just different today. It's a different deal, and I do. I think at some point, with all the research coming out on the levels of depression and mental problem kids are having, that people are starting to see like this is you're 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 giving a kid a loaded bomb to destroy their life, and that I really feel like at some point there's going to be a swing back. Well, I mean, away. we're seeing it with, uh, you know, with uh, prescription drugs. I, I talked to uh, John Van Holt is one of the um, the guys who was, you know, we, we'd helped him with his rehab and trained with us for a number of years for uh, in Southern California for HPT, PT. And I always ask him, like, hey, how's it going? And he's like, man, the um, it's pretty interesting because they were having a huge problem with uh, prescription drugs. And mm-hmm. now that, like, with all the weight that Trump and different people are putting on these companies, they've become very, very stringent on uh, the prescriptions now. And so, like, Pfizer and that. And, like, it's harder to get these drugs now. And he's like, yeah, we're not seeing as many prescription drugs. I'm like, is that good? He's like, no, they're just going straight to heroin. He's like, before we'd get there, there was, like, a process. Like, they would go and max out the pills, and then they would go to drugs. He's like, now they're just skipping the pills now and going straight to this. And I'm like, oh, that's good. And he's like, yeah, it's fucking it's crazy um and uh you know kind of like that like are we going to get to a point where they're like you know um uh we know that like things like facebook and a lot of these things are causing these forms of uh you know uh you know depression or the other scary one i was trying to explain this to uh my daughters yesterday um one of my good friends uh he made a good point once he said you don't do your kid any favors by shielding the ugliness of the world from him mm-hmm. because you're going to create this utopian society everything's going to be great and then at some point they're going to go out and they're going to see how ugly the world was and you yeah. haven't prepared them so talk to your kids about drugs talk to them about alcohol if you see somebody this and you know how they're acting and i was talking to my girls yesterday about uh about alcohol and like you know what it does and mm-hmm. you know if you could maybe you know have a, a social drink opposed from you know abusing it in this and i tried to tell them i'm like you know at some point you will you know be in a situation where people have had too many drinks and you have to make a decision like do you want to act like that are you safe and i said as a as a guy it's a little different uh as girls um there's people that prey on that stuff and take advantage and like i don't want to talk to them about that yet i mean but it's like you have to you know like it, it just we just want to start having these conversations early yeah, no, yeah you got to because they're going to get educated so yeah. it, be, it better come from you or they're going to get it from a, a bad source possibly so yeah. very wise 
Yeah, no, I, I had a, a recently I had a buddy hit me up who um, I played football with in college and, you know, struggling with with alcohol, you know, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, alcoholic and having problems and this. And I was talking to him on the phone. I told the girls, I'm like, you know, it, it's uh, uh, these are problems that, you know, you have to work through and people see it. And, uh, you know, it's best to just avoid it, and, you know, but unfortunately, there's the idea that, you know, you're just going to put your bury, bury your head in your sand and never going to deal with it. It doesn't exist. You're going to go to college. You're going to be in social settings. So you have to be armed with the information. But um, as parents, man, we have this desire to like shield our kids and protect them and take mm-hmm. care of every problem in this. And uh, I think that's just the wrong approach. We don't, uh, we don't create, uh, you know, problem solvers anymore, you know, just mommy and daddy will fix everything. Like Luke's saying, showing up to the dentist with your f- fucking 40 year old kid paying for his fucking, <laughs> yeah. you know, get his teeth cleaned. Like that's dude's crazy fucking, to me. Dude's complaining like a child. It's fucking do insane. I still, do I still get my toy? Mr. Exactly. Summers? Dr. Summers. Exactly. It's yeah, fucked up, man. What up? I mean, but I, I can't but for imagine. for every one of those, you, you just kind of cross your fingers and hope that there's 20 of the normies that fucking, you know, they grow up and are self-sufficient and get booted out of the nest and either become a captain of industry or a fucking ditch digger, but they're doing something to contribute, right? Do you, do you think, like, uh, the technology piece, and this is something interesting for your athletes, I was thinking about, like, uh, Snapchat and Instagram and all yeah. these different social media um, you know, does that, uh, does that change the way that they interact in terms of sport? I mean, I was thinking about like when you said it, like recruiting and it's like, as a coach, you can follow kids, Instagram page and you can probably be like peripherally watching what they do. And then I was thinking about like these kids posting a bunch of crazy shit and you're like, Ooh, I was recruiting this kid for, uh, you know, for soccer, volleyball, whatever. And like, Oh, I didn't really need to see this stuff, you know? So then now it's like them realizing that like, who's watching you could a potential coach be watching you could a strength coach you know like if you're in the recruiting process is what you're putting out the best foot forward yeah i think you know that is a great question we are living in a day and time where you cannot hide anymore and everything is so accessible and you know back when i was young and you guys were you know john you were you're i think we're similar age but you you could go out and act a little crazy and do something. You didn't have to worry about getting videoed. You just you just laughed about it for the next few weeks, and then when you were done, now you may tell it as you get older. But but today, anything you say, anything you do, any place you visit, can be out there and is subject for scrutiny, and can be misinterpreted. And so, a big part of our kids today, not only raising them up, train, equipping them, is just teaching them. You can't just train kids to be great athletes. You've got to, you've got to go back and teach them how to have really good character too. You can't because that's the piece that's missing. Think about today. Um, this happened just two days ago with my. I got a twelve-year-old, and I asked her about something that was going on in the news. She gave me verbatim what was going on. I had no idea, and because she's connected, Plugged so our in, kids yeah. today. The, the term is artificial maturity. Our kids are getting hmm, yeah. information for their age level that, that should have been for us 20, 30 years old. People, grown adults, men and women, are getting now 8, 9, 10 years old. So they're getting more information and content than we were ever had access to. And so they know a lot, but they don't have the life skills and the maturity to yeah. handle that information. So that is where you've got to bring that piece into recruiting and know what you're dealing with, um, mm-hmm. with that kind of stuff. And you got to evaluate that. That's a big piece of it. Artificial maturity. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, just thinking about like, I mean, 
you know, obviously uh, the amount of dumb stuff I did when I was younger and Luke will probably, you know, tenfold me no, on that one. I'd never, but never. like, I mean, I, I like, honestly, like I'm, I'm so thankful that, uh, even in early in my NFL career, that sure. social media really wasn't a big deal. I mean, until 2007, 2008, the end of my NFL career, I mean, just, you know, the amount of people pulling out phones and taking videos now, like, uh, anything that you see, it's pretty amazing. Like I, I forgot what we were watching. Um, but, um, um, it was, uh, something, uh, oh, um, we were up in Mammoth and for this 4th of July thing we went to, uh, the amount of people, like as the parade's going by, the amount of people not watching and videoing it was crazy to me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, are you going to go home and watch this? This is a stupid parade. Like on 4th of July and people were like, you know, trying to capture everything. And I'm like, um, I'd rather just keep my phone in the pocket and just take the memory home. Yeah, it's not worth the battery, to and be honest with you. What if I need that battery later to film something much more fucking epic than a float the, driving by at two miles an hour? Uh, yeah. Last last two years of my athletic career is right when Facebook, you were able to post photos on there. Mm-hmm. And that that changed a lot because we had to, I guess, no digital cameras at our parties to try to protect our season. And... Catholic University, one of our rivals, they went down. They got their whole season suspended because of somebody posted photos. And I guess athletic directors saw those parties and then shut down the whole girls team for the year. And we're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, this is real. Yeah, it is. You got to, they got to, you, you, you give a kid something that powerful as social media and they don't know how to handle it, it can get bad really quick. So it's, it's a big deal today for sure. Have you had any issues? I mean, you don't have to say in specifics, but I mean, anything where, um, you know, something like social media lost somebody a scholarship or potential? Yeah, oh, yeah wow. I've, I've definitely, uh, I've witnessed that up close and it's very painful and it's very disappointing. It happened probably, it's been a long time, but I mean, I've seen a kid not just lost a scholarship, but just because of a post they put on, you know, that was very, um, it was just very charged in some of the words they use racially. And that's just not acceptable in a, in a character institution. And unfortunately, they had to pay high consequence for that, which was the right thing to do. Uh, but again, the kid wasn't trying to be, I don't think, harmful or intentional in any way, but just didn't realize, again, that artificial maturity did not realize the weight of them typing a little phrase on, their, on Facebook or whatever, uh, what it would cost them. Because at that point, when, when, when you have... Always, the bigger the offense, the more people that you hurt, the bigger the price you're going to pay. And at that point, when you start doing stuff like that, then other governing bodies step in and make choices that you have no control over. And that's just the way our society is moving towards that. You, you gotta be, you've got to be so careful on how you say things. I mean, you've got to be PC today. I mean, you just do. And, and uh, because, again, people are watching. I remember I had a conversation recently with uh with a professor and we were talking about just some of the different you know I, I live in a college setting and just all the different i mean there's not a week or a day goes by it seems like collegiately there's just not some kind of scandal going on or something that's come out in the news and this professor made a statement to me that was just profound he said we're living in a day where you really as a leader you are living your life under an x-ray machine and everything you do people see and you can't, you just, again, like I said, or you can't hide it. So you really got to be transparent and you've got to do things above reproach with high class and high character. If you're going to, if you're going to work at a, at an institution that they, uh, they, they build their foundational integrity and character and good moral values, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to live 
what you're actually saying. You're, you, or this is, this is our standard. And so it's just a different day, different day in, in sport. That's the price of fucking immediate accessibility, though, right? And scalable networking. But no, it's interesting shit, Donnie. We got anything else, Tex? That's it. Another one in the books. All thanks to Donnie Mabe. Appreciate it, fellas. I really enjoy just spending time hanging out with you and yeah, you destroying my legs. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Anyway, gotta, yeah, yeah, like I said, in, anytime we can help, man, we're always like coming out to UT and seeing what you're doing. It's always great. Yeah, we, we appreciate the support and definitely the friendship and camaraderie. So you guys are doing, doing some awesome things. So thank you for what you're doing for the strength game. We appreciate it. I oh, appreciate it, man. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing, ing, ing. And you want that ing, 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 ing shirt. I want it. Harry at PowerAthleteHQ.com. Subject line, <laughs> ing, ing, ing. I, I want, want it. it. You could do that caps lock. You could do hyphens between the ing, ing, ings. You could do ellipses. That's the three periods in a row. You could put some exclamation points. I don't know. Just get creative because the more creative you are, the more real this shirt becomes. That's it, people. All righty. Bye. Thanks. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can follow Donnie Mabe on Instagram at Donnie Mabe or don't. With all that talk of being inundated with social media, maybe we could all use a break. Speaking of taking a break, it's time for another installment of why you should attend the 2018 Power Athlete Symposium in Austin, Texas. This week, I bring you tortilla chips. If you're like me, you are not from Texas, but you love a damn good tortilla chip. Well, I have yet to find anywhere that even comes close to comparing to the delicious crispy treats that are made fresh nearly everywhere in Austin. That's why every year I maintain a significant chip deficit until December when I attend Chip Fest, aka the symposium. And then while I'm there, I hold myself to a steady 700 chip minimum just to get me through until next year, till the next symposium. Until next time, bye!